0: Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We hope moving forward you'll join us for in depth discussions on how theology intersects with our daily lives. We're your hosts. I'm Father Miles Hickson. And I'm Father Wesley Walker. And we are super excited today to have a very special guest. We have with us Bishop Jones of the Anglican Province of America. Welcome, Bishop.
1: Thank you so much. It's a delight and honor to be with you. I'm so excited for this invitation. Thank you for having me. Right. Well, before we get into our topic for the day, because we have a lot
0: to discuss and it's a meaty topic, which is good. Bishop, can you just give us uh, your own short Reader's Digest introduction? What do you do? How do you do it? What are you into?
1: Thank you. Well, I'd, I'd be thrilled to tell you a little bit about myself. I'm Bishop Chandler Holder Jones, SSC a member of the Society of the Holy Cross, which is the oldest fraternity for Anglican priests and one of the vanguard organizations, if you will, of the Oxford Movement and the Tractarian Revival in the 19th century. Well, I am the Bishop Coadjutor of the Diocese of the Eastern United States of the Anglican Province of America, and I was elected to that position in July at our annual diocesan synod. But to backtrack a little bit, I was brought up an evangelical Southern Baptist in North Carolina and converted to Anglicanism when I was a teenager. Recently, back in 2015, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about this conversion because my brother, at the same time, an identical twin brother, converted to Roman Catholicism. And so the article featured us. He is a Roman Catholic priest. I am today an Anglican bishop. And we went our separate ways in our teen years. I was brought up as Southern Baptist, went to college with the expectation of becoming a priest, and upon graduation from undergraduate at a small college in Virginia, went to Duke University Divinity School, was graduated in 1996. I was ordained deacon and priest in the continuing church that year, and I've served parishes in Virginia, Maryland, Florida, and Georgia. And today I'm the rector of St. Barnabas Anglican Church in Dunwoody, Georgia, which is A suburb of Atlanta just north of the city. I've been there now for 12 years. So when I'm not functioning as the coadjutor of the diocese, I'm trying to help out as the rector of my own parish. They keep me very busy.
0: (laughs) That's great. Well, it is an honor to have you today. Mm -hmm. It is going to be such a delight to pour into your wealth of knowledge and, and glean what you have to offer to us. So jumping into our topic. So many of our episodes thus far on the sacramentalist, uh, they've been a defense of the Anglican faith and Anglican practice, particularly Anglo-Catholic faith and practice in light of what I would call low church evangelical critiques. So we've been addressing these concerns about Anglicanism as if the people listening and our interlocutors were evangelicals, low church who needed a defense. Well, today we're shifting gears. We are going to defend Anglicanism as a true and properly Catholic expression of the faith in light of Roman Catholic and to some extent Eastern Orthodox critiques and and really the crux. Of these critiques, they hinge upon the question, do Anglican ministers have valid holy orders? In other words, are Anglican clergy, are us three on this podcast in apostolic succession that our Lord Jesus Christ established for the sake of word and sacrament, or are there no differences between us three and the Protestant ministers down the street? And so with that question, are Anglican ministers validly ordained in Catholic order? I turn it over to you, Bishop.
1: This is a huge subject, and I'm so glad that we're tackling that today. Thank you. This goes to the very essence, the very heart of the claim of the Anglican Church to have a continuity with the Church of the Ages. Anglicanism historically has always said, that it has no faith and no order but that of the undivided Catholic Church of the first millennium, and that the Anglican Church is, in fact, the ancient Catholic Church of the British Isles. It was once said in England that it was the Catholic Church of the country, and that has certainly been the position of Anglicanism since the Reformation and before the Reformation and during the cataclysmic experiences of the Reformation, but this has been a consistent Unbroken position of Anglicanism from the very beginning. And the heart of the claim that Anglicanism is a true branch of Christ's one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church resides in the assertion that we have maintained the Apostolic ministry of bishops, priests, and deacons in an uninterrupted succession from the Apostolic Age. So, where can we go to find where Anglicanism asserts this? Well, let's read from the preface of the Ordinal which is the ordination service of the Anglican Church promulgated in 1550. And at the very beginning of the Reformation period, we read this. It is evident unto all men diligently reading Holy Scripture and ancient authors that from the Apostles' time there have been these orders of ministers in Christ's Church, bishops, priests, and deacons, which offices were evermore had in such reverend estimation that no man might presume to execute any of them except he were first called, tried, examined, and known to have such qualities as are requisite for the same, and also by public prayer with imposition of hands were approved and admitted thereunto by lawful authority, and therefore to the intent that these orders may be continued and reverently used and esteemed in this church No man shall be accounted or taken to be a lawful bishop, priest, or deacon in this church, or suffered to execute any of the said functions, except he be called, tried, examined, and admitted thereunto, according to the form hereafter following, or hath had episcopal consecration or ordination. That's the preface to the ordinal, and that sets the intention for what the Anglican church does. Now, it must be said at the beginning that more ink has been spilled over the subject of Anglican orders than any other theological disputation in English language. Probably more books and more essays have been written about Anglican orders than anything else because it has been such a, contributed, a controverted question since the time of the Reformation. But perhaps this this day, in a simple way, we can try to put to rest and settle favorably the question of Anglican orders. We would like to do that today, if we could. Right now, here
0: on on the yeah. on the uh, the sacramentalist, we will put the question to rest forever.
1: Put it to rest forever. What a, what a day
0: to be alive!
1: <laughs> We're going to try, aren't we? Well, let's please try to do that. And we would have to first address the question of validity. What is a valid sacrament? A valid sacrament in the general sense of the meaning of the word, is a sacrament that is efficacious. That is, that it provides the grace that Christ promises to us by instituting and giving the sacrament to the church. Now, strictly speaking, validity is a legal term, not a theological one. Any sacrament is valid for the community that celebrates it. So it's a legal term. It is recognized in the community for the community or the church within a particular church. The question of validity only presses us when we begin to examine whether or not the sacrament of one church can be recognized by that of another church or can be recognized by another church. Then the question of validity starts to play a larger role in our discussions about theology. Every sacrament is valid for the church that celebrates it. But when two churches begin to interface and to relate to each other, then the question arises, is the sacrament one that can be mutually recognized? Now, within the church's life herself, valid means working, ex opere operato. It's working according to the work. So the sacrament produces the effect that Christ ordained for it, And it is efficacious, it actually confers grace. What we maintain is that Anglican orders are both valid in the legal sense, recognized not only by the Anglican church, but also should be recognized by other churches, and it is valid in that more precise theological sense that it is efficacious, holy orders confer the grace of Christ. So this is what was disputed by Pope Leo XIII in 1896 in his papal bull Apostolicae Curae. And what we want to do today is to address what Pope Leo XIII has written in that papal bull and in, in it the condemnation of Anglican orders, which he said were absolutely void, utterly null, or maybe it was absolutely null, utterly void. And we want to address that in particular. Now, as we speak today, we'll only address holy orders conferred by Orthodox Anglican bishops using the historic ordinal. There are even questions within Anglicanism about whether or not there has been a proper transmission of holy orders according to the use of more contemporary rites. So we will limit ourselves to addressing the question of holy orders as conferred by bishops who are orthodox regarding the doctrine of holy orders and use the 1550, 1662, 1928 tradition of the historic Anglican ordinals, and will try to avoid any modern controversies regarding contemporary liturgical rites. I've spent a number of years, actually I think it's fair to say decades, examining this question, (coughs) because like many of us, I have Roman Catholic family and friends starting with my brother, who is a Roman Catholic priest. And so we Anglicans often are put on the defensive regarding this question, and we are asked to defend the teaching and the practice of the Anglican Church. How can you maintain that you have Catholic holy orders? Well, that's what we'll discuss today. What is the sacrament of holy orders? Let's address that first. It's the transmission of the authority, grace, and commission of Jesus Christ, which our Lord gave to the 12 apostles, and that authority, grace, and commission, the very office and authority that Christ gave to the 12 in the apostolic office is conferred by the unbroken consecration and the laying on of hands, the imposition of hands from the 12 to the bishops of the current apostolic college of the modern day. We call this apostolic succession. It is literally the succession of the apostles. Christ ordained the 12 as the first bishops of the church and gave them power to teach, sanctify, and govern the church in his name and person. So in order to constitute the church in history as a perpetual sacrament, Christ, through the imposition of hands and the invocation of the Holy Ghost, created the priesthood of the Catholic and Apostolic Church. And this priesthood, is apostolic, it resides in the persons of the twelve, who hand on what they were given by an unbroken succession of authority and grace. So this power to teach, sanctify, and govern is the power to administer the word and sacraments as Christ instituted them, and therefore the church applied to this ministry in the third century the term sacerdotium, or priesthood. A term that was first applied not to the presbyterate, or the second order of the ministry, but to the episcopate, to the first order, when St. Cyprian of Carthage first used the term sacerdos to apply that to bishops. Bishops were understood to be priests in the Catholic sense. So the sacrament of holy orders is the sacrament of the church's life and history. The structure upon which the church is built sacramentally. And this sacrament is the apostolic sacrament by which men are consecrated as the successors of the apostles and exercise the apostolic ministry in persona Christi Capitus, in the person of Christ, who is the head of the church. So this is where we must begin. Is this doctrine contained in the Ordinal and in the Book of Common Prayer? Mm-hmm. It is. Let me pause there and see what your comments are on this.
2: <laughs> I have a I have a question uh, so much more than a comment, and I think it would be beneficial because obviously I think our audience comes from two different um, perspectives. We have the people who might be Roman Catholic or Anglican Catholic, and they would all agree with pretty much everything that you've said. But we also have a number of, you know, low church Anglicans and evangelicals who are maybe on the Can- Canterbury trail. Could you just say uh, a little bit about the importance of, of apostolic secession being a manual transmission rather than merely uh, the minister kind of embodying the spirit of the apostles preaching?
1: Thank you. That's terrific. The reason why it's important is because the church is herself sacramental and is the great sacrament of Christ in history. Therefore, Christ intended not a a sort of ephemeral or ghostly or Gnostic handing on of the authority that he gave to the apostles, but rather it is is concretized, if you will, in history. And so the sacramental principle is that Christ extends his incarnate life and work through outward and visible signs of inward and spiritual grace, of which the church is the greatest sign and representation. Christ, the incarnate Lord, is the sacramental God, and he operates in the sacramental sphere. So the church is herself a sacrament. And he constituted and ordained the apostles to be In the words of Father Austin Ferrer, the great Anglican preacher, walking sacraments. Hmm. So the priesthood is an outward and visible sign of Christ's apostolic ministry. The manual transmission means that there is a physical contact, a transmission physically between the apostles and those who succeed them. And with the laying on of hands is the gift of the Holy Spirit, who then, consecrates the man and imparts upon him an indelible character of grace. So that it is not the worthiness of the man, but rather the transmission of the authority and this this conferral of a supernatural gift of grace, which enables the bishop or the priest or the deacon to exercise his ministry. All of this is the teaching of St. Augustine. So hopefully we can appeal to people of a more evangelical stripe because they certainly would have a love and respect for the teaching of the great father of the Western Church. This is Augustinian theology. But underlying that, it is essential to say that Christ ordained and constituted his church and structured his church in a visible way. The church is the divine society of souls that possesses visible characteristics. And amongst these, what is chief, is this transmission of having a leadership, a headship in the church that is visible, that is tangible, that is real in the real world, so that the apostle, the bishop, becomes the vicar of Christ. The bishop of Rome has taken this title to himself in a unique sense, but in a real sense, according to St. Cyprian of Carthage and St. Augustine of Hippo, every bishop is the vicar of Christ in his diocese. St. Ignatius of Antioch said, that the bishop is the icon of God the Father in his local church. So when we take the fathers and we start to examine what they say, it is necessary, if the church is to have a visible sacramental reality, it must have a visible sacramental head. And the head of the church is the bishop. The Bible and the early tradition does not know of a unique and exclusive bishop of, of Rome Who has a universal authority that is exclusive and different from the authority of the episcopate? St. Cyprian and St. Augustine said that the office of Peter is possessed in common by all bishops sharing one authority in the Apostolic College.
0: Yeah, and so I think this is an important point to make if you're more of the evangelical persuasion. Maybe this conversation's new to you that when we talk of apostolic succession, that is not synonymous. With papal succession. So, so papal succession is uh, what it sounds like, the succession of the Pope, the Bishop of Rome. And then the claim by Roman Catholics is to be valid or to be in in some sort of connection to the one true church. You must be an authority to him, under him, and with what he teaches and preaches, etc. But apostolic succession is 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 a bit less nuanced. It's simply the the full, as you said, bishop, college of bishops. Across the, across the globe, even today.
1: Yes. Anglican Catholicism, like Eastern Orthodoxy, maintains that as the Twelve were a brotherhood, a college, as they were a body, an assembly of equals, so it is today with the Episcopate. The bishops are the successors of the Holy Apostles and share their ministry in a common college, an apostolic collection or college, in which they share an equal ministry. To the exclusion of any claim of supremacy on the part of one bishop.
0: Well, that I think that's a incredible introduction to this uh, the the whole topic of succession and validity. So now we'll pinpoint even go deeper.
1: Let's go deeper. All right, this is exciting for those of us who really love history and theology. Let's talk just a little bit now about the two principal questions that were raised by Pope Leo the Thirteenth in eighteen ninety six. If you read Apostolicae Curae, it says that there is an invalidity in Anglican orders because there are two defects in the Anglican ordination rite. He identifies the defect of intention and the defect of form. What does that mean? That sounds like so much curiosity and perplexity to people who are not familiar with this kind of language. But what does it really mean? He's basing all of this on St. Augustine again. So let's go back to our good friend, St. Augustine. He says that in any sacrament, there are five essential components necessary for a valid or efficacious sacrament. A sacrament which instituted by Christ, covenanted by Christ, actually confers the grace promised by our Lord Jesus in the sacrament. And those five components are matter, which is the material element, the physical thing, form, the words that are used in the administration of the sacrament, subject, the person who receives the sacrament, minister, the person who administers the sacrament, and finally, intention, which is, what are you doing? What is this for? What is the purpose of it? So if we look at these five components of the sacrament of holy orders, We can review those very basically. You have matter, which is the laying on of hands, the imposition of hands. The form was not determined by Christ himself, but was given and commended to the church so that the church could develop necessary forms over time. There's no divinely revealed form for ordination. But the church in her wisdom and goodness has been led by the Holy Spirit to establish Necessary forms. You have the subject. The subject of holy orders is a baptized man, full stop, a baptized man. Confirmation is considered necessary for it to be legal or licit or canonical, but as long as the man is baptized, he may be validly ordained. The minister is a bishop in apostolic succession. And then finally, the intention is to do what the church does. Let's talk about intention. Where is Leo XIII wrong about the Anglican intention? He is wrong where we have already said in the preface to the ordinal. The preface to the ordinal of 1550 makes it abundantly clear that it is the intention of the Anglican right to continue in an uninterrupted way the apostolic ministry of bishops, priests, and deacons which have been in the church since apostolic times, since the apostolic age, and it is the intention of the Anglican church to continue these orders exactly as they have been received. Well, that ought to settle the question, right? <laughs> that really ought to bring it to its conclusion. There we have it. There is the intention. It's on paper. It's incorporated into the ordinal. There should be no question about it. Now, interestingly, Leo the Thirteenth ignores this And never mentions the preface to the ordinal in Apostolicae Curae, because the minute he would, that would dissolve the argument made in the bowl.
0: And so I think it's important to say that I know some Roman Catholics raise the objection that, well, there were bishops, much more Protestant, Reformed bishops, in the Church of England— who did not necessarily think they were creating priests or other bishops of this Catholic order. But I think it's important to say that we're not Donatist. It's not the intent of the individual ordaining bishop. It is the intention of the collective body. So the intention is tied up, as you said, bishop, in the preface to the ordinal, which was adopted by the entire church. So if there's one rogue bishop who doesn't believe it, That's not that that doesn't matter.
1: It doesn't matter. And it doesn't even affect his ability, his competence or faculty or capacity to confer valid orders. Father, you're exactly right. So let's look at this and outline it, if we may, as we have always received and understood it in the Western Church. Intention means generally to do what the church does, it means seriously to perform the right as understood by Christians, or to do what Christ wills, Christus volt, to do what Christ wills. It is not to intend what the church intends, it is only to do what the church does. Mm -hmm. So what we do when we ordain is we intend to do what Christ, the apostles, and the New Testament command, that is sufficient even if the intention is to do it in a general way. But this is what is key. It is not internal or interior or private. An individual bishop may have false ideas, long-headed beliefs about the nature of ordination. This does not matter so long as he uses a proper liturgical rite. The intention in the sacrament of holy orders, like all the sacraments, is determined by the liturgical rite that is used. The intention of the church is manifested in the rite. If we do the rite, the intention is present. So simply to intend to ordain a man to Christ's apostolic ministry is sufficient for what is intended by the church. And we don't have to go any farther than that in terms of a true intention. As you say, intention is revealed and manifested by the liturgical rite. The Church embodies her intention in the liturgical formulae. So whatever an individual person may believe in terms of orthodoxy or heterodoxy does not affect validity so long as the rite is used. Here, Leo is wrong. Amen.
2: (laughs) Can we talk a little bit about... um the same principle about intention, but maybe from a negative perspective. So, like, what would um, a defective intention look like, and how would we notice it?
1: Yes. Fantastic question. Really, the only way that one could corrupt a sacrament by excluding proper intention would be to have such a false view as to recklessly abandon what is essential to the ordination rite. Or to be playing, to be jesting. It was suggested, I believe it was, maybe even Saint Athanasius, who once observed children playing baptism by the water, and at one point he thought that that could certainly even be valid, even though they were playing around and they were pretending to baptize each other. An intention would have to be such that you do not intend to do what Christ wishes, are you intentionally exclude the action as a Christian right. Historically, the church has said that if you are pretending or acting or playing, joshing or jesting, that that would not be a proper intention. Or, or if you are so heretical as to not believe in Christ or to not believe that Christ is operative in the sacraments, That kind of lack of intention would invalidate a sacrament. Invalidating a sacrament from the point of view of intention is extremely difficult to do because the intention is the easiest of all five of the components.
0: Pope Leo's argument is that if you intended not to make a catholic minister if you intended something different a protestant a a radical different type of minister no 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 what i'm intending is you know 15th century bishop of england is something that's not anything in continuity with the with the, the catholic church of the ages he would say that constituted invalidity and that's yeah, what he's yeah. that's what he's looking at now we're yeah. Obviously, what you've shown from the ordinal is that's not what the Anglican bishops thought. But that would be another example of being able to invalidate the sacrament because you're not intending to do what the Church has always done.
1: Yes, and in this case, Leo is mistaken because he assigns to the intention of the Anglican Church something that the Anglican Church itself did not teach or believe. And we're going to demonstrate that next when we examine the question of form. But you're right. And of course, the men of the 16th century who did create the new liturgical rites at the time, they understood themselves to be continuing the apostolic ministry as received from Christ and the apostles and to maintain the apostolic tradition, which is evident by the preface to the ordinal. It is true that individual bishops and theologians at the time of the 16th century so reacted against abuses. For example, trafficking in holy things, the mass system with multiple masses offered for payments and for particular intentions, they were so horrified and mortified by the corrupt system that existed at that time, and it did exist, we cannot deny that it did, they were so appalled by that that their desire was to go behind the later medieval liturgical rites and to uncover what they believed was a biblical and patristic simplicity regarding how men ought to be ordained. And in so doing, they devised the 1550 ordinal. But in this process, in no way did they intend to exclude the historic ministry of the church and the threefold order of the church in the episcopate, the priesthood, and the diaconate. Yes, individually, they in some cases could be accused to have held private opinions that were at odds with the received tradition. But even that would not invalidate the use of a proper form. Which leads us, of course, to the other question. I do have a bit more about intention I'd like to say, but uh, please share your thoughts on that.
0: I think I heard a great story uh, uh, or from Father Scott Hauser from um, uh, just south of Birmingham, Alabama. And he traveled to England, and he said it was just this wonderful testament of how the English church at the Reformation understood ordination. You go to these country parishes, and you have they have a list on the wall, or at least this one parish he was at, of all the priests who've served the parish ever. And it goes through the 1300s, the 1400s, and you hit the Reformation, and you know what happens? Nothing. It just keeps going with priests, because in their mind— There's not a distinction. There's not a line drawn across that says post-Reformation, pre-Reformation. It's just another priest in the same succession.
1: Yes, precisely. This is why the Anglican Church intentionally kept the word priest in the 1550 ordinal. That is profoundly significant, and when we examine that in the light of later developments— in ecclesiastical history in the 16th and 17th centuries, one of the great oppositions, one of the great sources of consternation and irritation to the Puritans was the preservation of the word priest in the Anglican ordination rite. We did not call priests presbyters. And in fact, in the old Latin rite of ordination, they are called presbyters. Presbyterii and the like. Presbyterii, uh, that was used. and presbyter used in the old Latin ordination rite. We use the word priest to preserve its sacerdotal connotations, its sacerdotal meaning, and the purpose of the word priest as an offerer of sacrifice. So, yes, there's this absolutely brilliant and and marvelous continuity on the parochial level in the Church of England. The priest who was ordained before the Reformation remained the rector after the Reformation began, and his successor continued in office as a priest with no interruption, no rupture in the succession of the parochial ministry, because it was fully understood that the priesthood had been preserved. Mm -hmm. And we kept the word priest intentionally for this reason in our ordination rites.
2: And it's almost sort of, I mean, I know this is an earlier part of the Reformation, but uh, when Henry and Edward died and Reginald Pohl came into England, he wasn't mass reordaining priests. It was like they kind of understood that things were still, you know, valid uh, on that level, um, which I think is always interesting. I mean, he maybe did a few reordinations, I think, um, but not not in mass. There were people who hadn't been reordained under the, you know, under the new regime. Um, So I think that's interesting.
1: Oh, it's fascinating when you look at that particular event in time, the Pope instructed that the Cardinal Bishop should only ordain men who had not received the right of the Church, as it was called, not the Latin Rite, but an understood received right of ordination. He was speaking about Protestant ministers who had received some form of ordination without bishops and without the traditional laying on of hands and prayer for priestly ordination. He was not referring to the Anglican Rite because he would have done so, (laughs) he did not. He did not refer to the Anglican Rite. Rather, he referred to the Rite of the Church as being necessary, which presumably included both the old pontifical, the old Latin Rite of Ordination, as well as the 1550 Anglican Ordinal. But at that time, when we look at the, the Marian period, and when Queen Mary Tudor comes to the throne and there's the restoration of the papal church, those men are reordained only who had actually been Protestant ministers. And that is clear from the context of the papal instructions. The Anglican clergy were admitted to their benefices as having received holy orders. So that really contradicts Leo Thirteenth as well. And it's interesting that that's not mentioned in Apostolic Acurae either, is it?
2: (laughs) No, it's not.
1: It is is fascinating. I have just a couple more things I'd like to mention about intention, and then we'll go to the question of form. The Roman Catholic Church contradicted itself in 1896 because in 1872, the Holy Office received a question about baptisms administered by Methodists in Oceania in the region of Australia and New Zealand. And the question was, are these baptisms valid? Because the ministers giving them have preached sermons saying they don't believe in baptismal regeneration. So these ministers were saying publicly that they did not believe that baptism regenerates the soul. And yet they administered baptism with water in the name of the Blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Were these baptisms valid? The Holy Office said, yes, they are valid, because the intention is manifested in the rite itself, and the use of proper matter and form provides the necessary intention. So these baptisms were recognized as being valid. Fast forward to 1896, and this is contradicted in Apostolic Curae, where the matter and the form are used, but the intention is not presumed to be present. So this is a contradiction in terms. Mm -hmm. Don Gregory Dix, the great Anglican Benedictine writer and monk of the 20th century said, In the ancient church, to ordain a man to the priesthood was to lay a bishop's hands upon him and to invoke the Holy Spirit to make the man a priest or a bishop. The essence of ordination was the laying on of hands and the invocation of the Holy Ghost for the priesthood is conferred by the Spirit of God. The rite determines the intention, and therefore the laying on of hands with prayer to the Holy Spirit to make a man a priest or a bishop is what is absolutely necessary. Just as an aside, it's a fun, trivial point to point out that the Anglican ordinal refers to the priesthood 36 times and to the episcopate 100 times. So to say that we don't intend to make priests and bishops seems, well, a rather odd and curious uh, assertion or accusation. It simply isn't true. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we've addressed the question of intention and what is actually necessary. It's extremely simple.
2: When we talk about intention, and I know we're going to talk a little bit here about um, form, and these questions I think at some point become a little bit intertwined, but obviously one of the problems that Leo has is that the um, language of uh, Eucharistic sacrifice is removed from the um, ordination rite. So could you talk a little bit um, maybe about about what, about what why that might be, um, considering the fact that, as you just said, we do use the word priest um but it's obvious that there is a, a slight change from the Roman ordination service, or at least one of them. I, I know there were multiple ones, too, so it wasn't like there was a singular ordination service either.
1: That is fantastic, Father. Thank you so much. You have anticipated one of the crucial points in Apostolic cure, one of the strenuous points made, which to this day is used to condemn Anglican orders from the perspective of Roman Catholic writers although it must be said that many Roman Catholic theologians have very freely and very willingly accepted the validity of Anglican ordinations. And in the 20th century, there were probably more Roman Catholic theologians that accepted them than rejected them. This is an absolutely crucial point. I'm going to read from the Book of Common Prayer and the Ordinal. So do we exclude the offering of the holy sacrifice of the Mass of the Eucharistic sacrifice in the ordination of Anglican priests? Well, to answer this question, we can actually point out a couple of references in the ordinal itself. One of the questions that the bishop asks of the priest is, Will you then give your faithful diligence always so to minister the doctrine and sacraments and the discipline of Christ as the Lord hath commanded and as this church hath received the same? doctrine and sacraments then upon the ordination rite itself the bishop says in the laying on of hands and be thou a faithful dispenser of the word of god and of his holy sacraments then after the laying on of hands we hear this take thou authority to preach the word of god and to minister the holy sacraments in the anglican rite we include the offering of Eucharistic sacrifice in reference to the sacraments, because, of course, the Eucharist is the preeminent sacrament. It is the sacrament sacramentum sacramentorum, as St. Thomas Aquinas described it, the highest of the sacraments, because it contains our Lord Jesus Christ under the form of bread and wine, and in the consecration of the Eucharistic species our Lord changes the bread and wine into his true body and blood and in so doing renders himself under the Father as our perfect and living sacrifice. The Eucharist is a sacrifice because the body and blood of Jesus Christ are always sacrificial. They were crucified on Calvary. They are risen from the dead and exalted in glory to the Father's right hand where the Lord Jesus lives and reigns forever as our great high priest, mediator, and advocate. And the risen body of Jesus, his glorified human nature, is the sacrifice of our redemption. So in Eucharistic consecration, there is Eucharistic sacrifice and offering, because Christ is always priest and victim when he is present in his glorified human nature. The Anglican rite, in a very circumspect way, includes the offering of the Eucharistic sacrifice with the authority to administer the sacraments as Christ has ordained them. The Anglican priest is ordained to be a dispenser of the sacraments and is therefore the dispenser of the Eucharistic sacrifice. I think this would suffice to answer the question that was raised by Leo the Thirteenth. We can also say that the elements which are missing from the Anglican ordination rite are the same elements missing in the Eastern Orthodox ordination rite and in all of the ordination rites of both the Western and Eastern churches before the ninth century. And this is the point of the Archbishops of Canterbury and York in Sapius Officio, in which they say, to require embellishments or additions of the late medieval period in order to make an ordination rite valid would render all ordination rites invalid before the ninth century and would mean that the church has no apostolic succession. It's a Mm. very dangerous argument. So let's look at the question of matter and form in the Anglican Ordinal. We may speak of Cranmer's continuity here, something he is accused of not doing, but there is a tremendous continuity here, because the matter in Anglican Orders is what we find in the New Testament and the Apostolic Age, which is the laying on of hands the imposition of hands, and the continuity also is found in the phrase acope spiritum sanctum, receive the Holy Ghost, which is given to us by our blessed Lord. This form of ordination, the words used, come directly from Christ and are used in the Anglican formula of ordination. Commonly, this form was believed to be the form during all of the later Middle Ages by all theologians. There was a Council of Mainz, which was held in Germany in the early 16th century before the Reformation really got itself underway. And that council said that the form of ordination for bishops and priests was receive the Holy Ghost. So the meaning of the phrase atchipa spiritum sanctum, receive the Holy Ghost, is determined by the context of the liturgy. There is a moral unity of the liturgical rite what we might call a consignification, a consignificatio, and this determines the meaning of the form in any ordination rite. Any ordination rite that we may examine must be understood as a moral unity, as a moral whole. It is the whole rite that lends the significance to particular words and actions. And so when you examine the Anglican rite for ordination of priests and bishops, the phrase Receive the Holy Ghost receives its meaning, certainly clarified by the whole rite. Now, the, the patriarch of Constantinople in 1922 said that Anglican orders were valid. And the reason why <coughs> valid is that you have the imposition of hands and you have the epiclesis of the all Holy Spirit upon the man to make him a, a bishop or a priest. And this epiclesis is receive the Holy Ghost. So we affirm that the sacramental form certainly is not only valid, but it is in fact from our Lord Jesus Christ. This was considered the sacramental form by the Roman Catholic Church at the 1896 commission because the Pope had not specifically defined in 1896 what the sacramental form of ordination was. Pope Pius XII in 1947 Would finally declare for the Latin Rite what the forms of ordination actually are. So at this point in 1896, you have Roman Catholic theologians saying that receive the Holy Ghost was in fact the sacramental form. So, what is necessary for matter and form? You have to have the laying on of hands, and you have to have a prayer, or you have to have an invocation of the Holy Spirit, which indicates grace and. The office being confirmed. Okay, so what do we have in the form of the Anglican Church? What is the form? You have to have a form that indicates grace and the order being given. This is found in both Anglican forms. The grace, of course, is the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Ghost. That is the gift of the Holy Spirit for ordination. And we find a prayer for grace in both the collect and in the litany of the ordination rite. Both the collect and the litany directly ask for the grace of holy orders. And asking the Holy Spirit is certainly asking for grace, isn't it? When we we think so, it's asking for grace. Now, the order is identified by the biblical forms. We use forms directly taken from the New Testament. St. John 20, verses 21 to 23, for the ordination rite of priests, and 2 Timothy 1, verses 6 and 7, for the ordination of bishops. Our forms are invested with both grace and power for the priesthood and for the episcopate. How could one deny that the biblical forms would be adequate for ordaining a man, a priest, or a bishop. And in fact, the Council of Trent refers to both of these scriptural passages as Christ's institution of the priesthood and the episcopate. What's really shocking about Apostolic e. cure is that it condemns as formulas for ordination scriptural phrases that are used at the Council of Trent to define the meaning of the priesthood and the episcopate. So it's completely inconsistent. Wow. I didn't know that. So the purpose of the Anglican rite is to simplify the rite based on the New Testament and the earliest ordination rites, and the terms priest and bishop are found throughout each of these all the way up until 1662. Now, in 1662, the words priest and bishop were added to the phrase receive the Holy Ghost. Why? Was it to... Realized that the Roman Catholics were wanting us to do this and so we changed our form to please the Bishop of Rome. No. The reason that the words priest or bishop were added to the sacramental forms in 1662 was to correct the error of the Puritans, of the, of the Protestants, who were saying that bishop and priest were equal offices. And so the Anglican Rite intensified the meaning of these forms To confound the errors of the Puritans who wanted to say that bishop and priest were the same office and not distinct. So, this is where we come down on the question of form. I hope that that helps explain why we use the forms that we do. They are actually from the Exeter and the Serum Pontificals of the 13th century, and they were recognized by all Latin theologians of the late Middle Ages as being perfectly valid. Well, I
0: think one thing, what you just said there at the end, is an important point to comment on, and that is there, there's no such thing as liturgical uniformity, in the quote-unquote Roman Catholic Church, until Trent. There, there were multiple uh, forms used for very for for all the sacraments, and so to come down hard on Anglicanism as Pope Leo does for having different form, is um, is just absurd.
1: It's certainly anti-historical, isn't it? It's certainly contrary to what we have received in the Church's life and tradition, and this can be so very easily and plainly demonstrated. So this would lead us to the understanding that Leo XIII's motivation in Apostolic A. is more political than theological. Now, we've talked about the Sacrament of Holy Orders and what it is, We've talked about where this controversy arises. We have spoken about the necessity of intention and how that comes about and what the church actually means by intention and how the Anglican church has maintained that intention. We've now talked about the form and the continuity of the form and the clear and explicit theology of a sacerdotal priesthood in the form. Noting that in St. John chapter 20, our Lord breathes the Holy Ghost upon the apostles after his resurrection and gives them the power of absolution to forgive sins in Christ's name, the Anglican ordinal is very explicit in saying that the principal power of priests is the forgiveness of sins. With the celebration of the Eucharistic sacrifice, the priesthood is given the power of the keys. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Receive the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. This is at the essence of the Catholic priesthood, the risen Jesus imparts the Holy Ghost upon the apostles so that he may take to the world his Easter peace and offer forgiveness of sins to the nations by the power of Christ's death and resurrection. Now, if that isn't priesthood, I don't know what is. That's at the very heart. That is at the core of what it means to be a Catholic priest, to possess the power of the keys, to have the sacramental authority and power to exercise absolution. And with that, of course, to celebrate the Eucharistic sacrifice, because Christ gave the power to the Twelve to celebrate this mystery at the Last Supper, When our Lord gave to the 12 the authority to do this, do this in an of me, do this to make me present again. And so we find that also deeply bound up in the scriptural narrative and in the command of Christ as he constitutes the 12, the priests of the new and everlasting covenant. And we have spoken, therefore, about form and why the Anglican Church elected to use biblical forms for the Episcopate. It is, stir up the grace of God, which is in thee by the imposition of, your, of these hands, uh, of hands, and of course when the bishop does that, of your hands, when you lay hands on others. Stir up the grace of God, which is in thee by the imposition of our hands, for God has not given us the spirit of fear, but has given us the spirit of love, and soberness of a sound mind. This is St. Paul's commission to Timothy, making him a bishop. And this is why Anglicans have retained that as the sacramental form. I have just a few more brief notes about this, but I think we've covered it quite well. Fathers, what would you like to say in reference to these earlier points, if you have things you'd like to say?
0: Amen. Amen. I think it's good. I think I think everything you've said, Bishop, is it it's cut to the heart of the discussion. It's cut to the heart of the debate back and forth. And it really shows that what Leo brings up is is unfortunately uninformed and politically driven. It also shows that it is a modern question this, this, you know, could Anglicans be valid or invalid? It's, it's such a modern question that was not even being asked in, in reformational times. As you said, even the Roman Catholics during the Reformation were not looking at Anglican priests and saying you're invalid. So, so yeah. it's a modern question because of modern issues, modern situations. And as you said, I, I, I have heard also as well. Roman Catholics who say, yeah, Anglican orders are valid. It's good to hear the patriarch of Constantinople in, would you say, 1922 said, admitted this as well, that these other communions are recognizing that for whatever else we disagree on, there can be a a trust that grace is being conferred in the Anglican church, which gives, pun intended, validity to what we're doing here on, on Sunday mornings.
1: Absolutely. The priesthood is all about moral certitude and it's about the assurance of grace. The priesthood was instituted by Christ so that there might be a covenantal means of grace through which we receive the promised sacraments, the promised grace of Christ, his incarnate life applied and appropriated to us. So a valid priesthood means a valid church. A valid priesthood means we are receiving Christ at the altar A valid priesthood means we are receiving what Jesus richly and beautifully covenants to us in the life of sacramental grace. And as Anglicans, we can be well assured that we have this apostolic gift from the hands of Jesus Christ himself.
2: Amen. One pushback that I've gotten from Roman friends uh, as I've had these conversations and gotten a little bit more in-depth in some of the documents and primary sources has been that— You know when you point out the contradictory nature of some of the statements by the popes on this question. So you know if what they say in um, in the 19th century is true, then they can't have orders you know before that uh, because they undercut themselves. Uh, They often pull what I think is sort of a God of the Gaps argument uh, that is uh, doctrinal development. Um, so well, you know, it, at one time it wasn't required, but now it is because the Pope has said so. so i'm I'm wondering,, um, Bishop, how you might respond to that kind of um, re- rebuttal that they often provide?
1: Yes, well, that very much relies on Newman's essay of development of Christian doctrine, which actually teaches, unlike St. Vincent of Larin's and the Commonatorium, which he wrote in the early church, It depends, or sees Christian doctrine, depends on seeing Christian doctrine as evolutionary. Orthodox Catholic Christians, such as Anglo-Catholics, do not believe in development of doctrine. We do believe in development of devotion. So the liturgy may grow and develop and evolve over centuries, but what is necessary to salvation is both proven by Holy Scripture and is to be located in the consensus patricum, the consensus of the fathers, the unanimous consent of the fathers, and the universal consent of the church in the first millennium. So wherever all Christians agreed in the first millennium on matters of dogma, that is where Anglo-Catholicism stands. and therefore we could use that principle of first millennium ecclesiology and first millennium dogmatic consensus as a way of showing that it is really not feasible to add to even liturgical texts such doctrines as are required later when they may not bear the consensus of the undivided church. Now, certainly, Eucharistic sacrifice is part of the consensus of the first millennium, but it was given expression liturgically in a variety of ways, a great multiplicity of ways in the early church. And there is no one statement or formulation of doctrine regarding how the Eucharistic sacrifice is to be understood. Rather, the fathers have a beautiful bouquet of theological expressions and various turns of phrase and speech to describe this mystery. And it is a mystery. And this does go to this question. ...that Leo XIII raises. All Catholic churches historically have recognized Anglican orders as sacramentally valid... ...except for the Roman Catholic Church. The Assyrian Church of the East recognized our orders in 1910. The Eastern Orthodox Chalcedonian churches recognized provisionally Anglican orders... ...as the same as the Roman Church and potentially as their own. Beginning in 1922 with the Patriarch of Constantinople. So the Roman Church is the only one that has ever raised any serious questions about it. The old Catholic Church of of Utrecht recognized Anglican orders in 1925. We find before the ninth century, there was no parexio instrumentorum. There was no tradition or handing on of the patent and the chalice, the cup and the plate in the ordination rite. So there was no tradition of the instruments in the early ordination rite of all Christians. There was no unction, anointing of the priest, symbolizing the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there were no explicit references to the sacrifice in the mass in the later language of scholasticism or the later Latin fathers in the late Middle Ages. All of that was absent from ordination rites in all Christian churches before certainly the ninth century and Leo the Thirteenth says something very interesting. He says that an ordination rite has to say that there must be the offering and consecration of the body and blood of Christ in the sacrifice of the mass and that this has to be found or signified in an ordination rite. Well, if we take a specific scholastic definition of that kind, we will find there are no ordination rites before the ninth century that use exactly that language. For example, a bishop does not say in the ninth century, I am ordaining you to offer and consecrate the body and blood of Christ. Bishops don't say that mm-hmm. in ordination rites before the ninth century. So that's quite a pickle. And so I think we, we can use that to demonstrate that Anglican ordinations are on par. With all ordinations in the early church, because the ordinal is very much like primitive ordination rites and has all that is essential, all that is necessary for ordination.
0: And I think that is a wonderful spot for us to conclude. This has been an amazing episode. I know it's been a deep episode. This has been drinking from a fountain, but it's but it's important. There's a lot of information here because, as you said, Bishop, a lot of ink's been spilled. and it's and it's an all- important question. Is the man standing at the altar a priest or not? That's what it comes down to. And as you restricted at the beginning, Orthodox, Anglicans in the world, we can be sure that the man up there, is is conferring the grace of God through apostolic succession. Yeah. And so that that what a comfort, what a joy to know that when I go to church on Sundays or an Anglican goes to church on Sundays or any other day of obligation, that there is a tactile connection to the apostles there up front. So if this episode for our listeners has been a bit heavy, a bit over your head, take comfort, dear Anglicans, that the Lord is with you incarnationally through his priests and bishops, and that this is a good and meat thing. Well, how about to wind down the episode in a way to bring us back to normal kind of conversations at a coffee shop? Let's talk about what we're into. Uh, Father Wes, are you into anything these days?
2: I have been. Uh, last weekend was week one of the NFL, and so I have been watching football uh, after I get home on Sundays. Uh, I, we have three services, so I'm usually pretty tired by the time we get home, so it's nice to just sit on the couch and watch football all day. The Dallas Cowboys won last week, and I anticipate that that's going to be a trend moving forward. So yeah, I've been pretty excited to do that. I've got my fantasy football league set up and uh, seem competitive in that, so... I just I love football. I've been teaching our son how to do um, how to do, say, down, set, hike and uh, throw the ball a little bit and stuff. So, um, yeah, it's been great.
0: That's a lot of fun. Well, for me, I've um, I've recently been reminded I've seen this movie uh, multiple times. It's actually the only DVD I own, but I've been Tree reminded. No, not Tree of Life. Heck No. Calvary. And I've just been reminded recently how great this movie is. Calvary is a movie produced by the Irish Film Guild. It's got Brendan Gleeson. He he acts as a Roman Catholic priest in this kind of country Irish parish, which might be redundant because all of Ireland's country, except for the only two cities. Anyway, we won't go there. And the parish hates him, but it is the epitome of what it means to be a priest in Christ one church. And there's this one scene that always gets me, and I would say it has shaped my pastoral ministry more than, maybe more than any book I've even read. And it's a moment where Brennan Gleeson, this priest, he's, he's speaking to this guy that is a homosexual prostitute. And this prostitute is talking to the priest and is just jeering at him, telling him you know, how much it would cost for the priest to pay to sleep with him and just all of these vile things. And immediately Brennan Gleason just, he just looks at this man and says, are you okay? Are, are you okay? He cuts all of the, all of the, the fluff and he sees this man as a person made in the image of God and wants to help him with the grace of Christ. And it, it is a powerful scene because the, the male prostitute just kind of, you can see him kind of jump. And he says, I, I, I'm fine, Father. Don't, I'm done. And he kind of walks away. What a powerful, powerful picture of what it means to be a priest, to just jump into the souls of people. Because you have but one job, to lead them to Christ. So that's what I've been into. Have, have either of you seen that movie?
1: Yes. It's magnificent. It's magnificent.
0: It is. So I I, I recommend it to all of our listeners. Please know it is a it is a heavy film and it is not one that you would want to invite your children to uh, watch with you, but it is powerful. It is powerful. As one of my friends who's a priest, Father Stephen Longclo, after he watched the film, he admitted that he pretty much stared at the wall and cried for 20 minutes. It was so powerful of what it means to be a priest. Well, Bishop Chad, Bishop Jones, what what are you into these days?
1: Well, thank you. And again, I want to thank you so much for having me on this. And I know this was very technical. And we went through a lot of things today that may require numerous episodes of listening over and over again to this one episode. And I want to uh, express my gratitude for your patience in trying to uh, unpack and undergird this very intense theological and historical question. Well, Like Father West, I, I at least, am a huge football fan. Now, the rest of my family is very chagrined by this. But on Saturdays, when I get the time, I love college football. So recently, I took my oldest son, Aiden, and we went to the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta and watched Duke destroyed by Alabama (laughs) in the Chick-fil-A kickoff game, the first game of the season. It was 40, let's see, 42-3 42-3 to 3 was the score at the end of the day. But what a fantastic experience to be there and see my Duke Blue Devils play the Alabama Tide. It was wild. What a great game. I do love college football. I'm traveling a lot this fall, and I'm, I'm sort of grieving that I'm not going to be able to watch a lot of college football. Mm-hmm. But I do record it on the DVR, and I watch it when I get a chance.
0: A true uh, fan.
1: When I'm, when I'm not doing that, right now I'm tackling a 600-page book, The New History of the Society of St. John the Evangelist, The mm-hmm. Cowley Fathers. It's a huge and very small print text. It's going to take a long time to wade through that. The Calley Fathers were one of the original Anglican religious orders for men in the Anglican Communion. They were at the forefront of the Catholic revival in the Anglican tradition. They no longer exist in England. They died out because of the problems that have existed within the Anglican Church tradition in the last century. There are very few Cali Fathers left. But our people in the continuing church would recognize the Cali Fathers because they gave us the American Missal. Mm -hmm. So we still use their missile. That's a marvelous thing. So it's worth taking the time to read that history to know where we come from. And part of the the tradition that has been so important to us in terms of monasticism, the religious life, liturgy, uh, really the story of the Cali Fathers is the story of Anglo-Catholicism in the 20th century. So it's going to be a fun book, but a very long read.
0: (laughs) Wow. Very great. Well, you'll have to uh, give us an update in a few years about how it went.
1: Absolutely. I'll
0: let you know yeah. <laughs> well, Bishop, we are we express our gratitude to you to taking for taking your time, as you mentioned at the beginning of the episode of your out of your busy schedule, to be here with us, the sacramentalists, and to share on a very important topic, a very needed conversation, albeit as technical as it is. I hope our listeners wade through it. I hope they, they understand the seriousness because so much hinges upon this conversation. So thank you for your diligence. Thank you for your service to Christ Church. And to our listeners, if you like what we're doing, uh, make sure to follow us on Twitter and on Facebook and rate, review, subscribe, and share us. Um, with with your friends. And if you have any feedback, especially about this episode or, or any others, Father Wes and I are planning a uh, question and answer episode to answer your questions coming up soon. Please email us at the sacramentalist at gmail.com. And Father Wes, will you give just a very quick explanation about the Facebook group?
2: Yeah, if you are interested in discussing the ideas uh, that we talk about on episodes or interacting with, people who have uh, walked on the Canterbury trail and who are reading about Anglo-Catholicism, then join our Facebook group on our Facebook page. You can find it um, and just request to join and we'll approve you. And um, it's become a really interesting place to have conversations about what goes on in the show. And I think uh, hopefully it'll continue to be so moving forward. Well, great. Well, Bishop, can I ask you to bless us? I
1: would be honored. Let us pray. And thank you again for having me on this wonderful, wonderful podcast.